chapter 20. Page 1685, if you're using the Pew Bible. This is God's word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, both for running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth, that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus did many other miracles, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Some of my favorite stories about the endurance of the Christian faith, particularly in the 20th century, come from behind the Iron Curtain of Communism. And there's one such story in the 1930s in uh, Kiev, which is of course today part of Ukraine. And there was a a leader uh, from the Soviet Union who went into Kiev and he was a great orator, a great leader. He was known as as someone who carried a lot of weight and power uh, in the regime. And he went to go speak to the people of Ukraine in in public that uh, belief in God is foolish. We've progressed beyond that. We're beyond the need to believe in an all-powerful deity. And so he went to a public forum of sorts in Kiev and he spoke uh, for a, a, a length of time, an hour, possibly even longer, And just really berating the people for their belief in God and telling them how foolish they were for it. After he was done, he left the stage to the priest, one of the Orthodox priests of the town. And he walks up, small, unassuming man, weak in the eyes of the world, small in stature. And it was assumed that he was going to go up there and he was going to give a counter-argument. Put forth a bunch of proofs for why the things this man had said was wrong. You can imagine the people had been beaten down for a long time. These are common folk who have now listened for an hour to this man talk about how foolish they are to believe in God. The priest didn't get up and offer any eloquent speech or philosophical proofs. He got up, he raised his hands as an Orthodox priest would do in the liturgy of the church. He raised his hands and he said with stunning courage, Christ is risen. And those people who had been beaten down for the last hour or so with equal courage thundered to their feet in an instant and they said, he is risen indeed. These are those who had not seen Jesus with their eyes. But as we read in 1 Peter, though you have not seen him, you love him. Rejoice with great joy. It's inexpressible. The resurrection is central. We ask ourselves, we read the Gospel of John. John tells us the purpose why he writes, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That we can have confidence that even though we do not see him with our eyes, we can believe. And that's not a blind jump in the dark. Our faith is not blind, but it's, it's built upon reason. It's built upon knowing and seeing the evidence that the gospel writers put in front of us. And that in Jesus we find someone who, who answers all of the questions of this life in a way that no one else does. He answers the questions of evil and justice and love and forgiveness. And so that we can stand with Thomas, the disciple, who said, even though he saw with his eyes, my Lord and my God, that we can say, With the same confidence that we do not behold Jesus with our eyes. My Lord and my God. We see from this passage that Jesus must rise. He also talks about some of the consequences that happen from from the resurrection. Not only must he rise, but he must depart. And then not only must he depart, but we 
must believe. So first, he must rise. First thing to notice from this passage is that John will tell us in verse 1, in verse 19, and verse 26 about the day of the week. He'll tell us it's the first day of the week, Sunday. Verse 1 and 19 are the day that Jesus is resurrected, and verse 26 is one week later. It's interesting because John decides not to tell us that Jesus was raised on the third day after he was crucified, which would have been one way for him to show us that Jesus had accurately predicted how the crucifixion and resurrection would have happened. He decides instead to talk to us about the first day of the week. Of course, the early church would have read this gospel. They would have known exactly what John was talking about. We read that. We know exactly what he is talking about. By the resurrection, Jesus has transformed the week itself. So that God's people gather together each and every week, the first day of the week. To celebrate what he has done in Christ. We celebrate it especially today. But each and every Lord's Day is a celebration of the day of the resurrection. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? That before the resurrection of Christ, God's people would work for six days and then rest. But now we rest first and then we work. A wonderful reminder of uh, the, the power of the work of Christ. That we have all that we need in him. In Christ alone we stand. We rest on the first day of the week. And then we work. And then we work to please God and to serve him out of love and gratitude. Not only do we notice the day of the week, but we notice Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene here, who's the first one to the tomb. Not only was she the first one to the tomb here in the Gospel of John, but she was one of the last to leave the cross. Last to leave the cross, first to be at the tomb. Why? Because she had been forgiven much. She understood the sin from which she needed to be redeemed. There's a lot of misconceptions about Mary Magdalene. People, for some reason, uh, through the history of the church, thought maybe she was a prostitute or especially promiscuous. We have no evidence of that. We have evidence that Jesus healed her of seven demonic spirits. We have evidence in Luke chapter 8 that she, was, she came from some means and she helped provide for Jesus and his ministry to, uh, with the disciples as he was uh, walking the earth and uh, ministering from town to town. But we know that she understood the depth of her sin and she understood the miraculous rescue of Jesus Christ and she loved him for that. She adored him for that. So she's the last to leave the cross She's the first to be at the tomb because she needs to be around her Savior. And she's searching for answers, trying to figure out what has happened. Friends, hear today that unless you are like Mary, you will not love Jesus as you ought. Unless you realize the depth of your sin, that from which Jesus alone can rescue you, you will not be sufficiently in love with your Savior. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. How is it that many who profess and call themselves Christians do so little for the Savior whose name they bear? He says this. Where sin is not felt at all, nothing is done. Where sin is felt little, little is done. The man who is deeply conscious of his own guilt and corruption and deeply convinced that without the death and intercession of Christ he would sink deservedly into the lowest hell, that is the man who will spend And be spent for Jesus. And think that he can never do enough to show forth his praise. You have that mentality today, brothers and sisters? That you can never do enough to show forth your praise. That you want this life to be something that you can spend and be spent for Jesus. 
your Savior because you understand the depth of his rescue for you. You understand that from which he has saved you, that you are like Mary Magdalene. You love him enough that you would stay at the cross as long as possible, that you would go to the tomb before the sun rises because you know that whatever is happening that you don't understand, you want to be around him. You want to be with your Savior. So we can imagine as we consider the love of Mary how much her heart would have broken as she comes to the tomb. She sees the stone rolled away. She thinks that uh, grave robbers have come and taken the body. She goes and runs and tells Peter and John. They run back to the tomb. We're told that John beats Peter back. It's kind of funny. John wrote the gospel and uh, he's bragging about how he's faster than, than Peter here. Probably just because John uh, was younger. He's younger than Peter. So he beats him to the tomb but uh, he doesn't go in. And how fitting that is for their personalities. That John gets to the tomb first. He doesn't go in but more cautious. Peter, not cautious at all, is he? We, we, we know Peter from all the Gospels, always, always doing something, and he runs right in. They get into the tomb, there's something strange. What is it? The linens and the grave clothes, they're still there. So immediately, John and Peter are processing this, and they're saying, okay, this, can't, this cannot have been grave robbers. Because we're told in John chapter 19, uh, that when Jesus was buried, these, all these expensive linens and cloths, perfumes, spices to dress the body. Uh, robbing of graves was a big problem back then. And uh, when, when it happened, they certainly wouldn't undress the body, leave some of the most valuable stuff there in the tomb behind and just take the body. So they're saying grave robbers couldn't have done this. The Jewish religious leaders wouldn't have done this because it would have raised suspicion that perhaps Jesus was right about what he had predicted. So it couldn't have been the Jewish leaders. Couldn't have been the Roman authorities because that would reflect poorly upon them and their kingdom. So John looks at all of this. We're told in in verse 8 that he believes. Just very simply believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. He doesn't understand all the implications of it. It doesn't seem like this necessarily grips his heart, does it? We read that he returns to his home. He and Peter both return to their home. And so it's not as if he's going around proclaiming this aloud. He's not going broadcasting it publicly. And what seems to be the missing link is that neither Peter nor John, now John, we're told explicitly he he believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. We're not told explicitly what Peter believes at this moment. But John believes he has risen. But the missing link is that he doesn't understand, apparently, that this is what must have happened according to Scripture. It's what must have happened according to Scripture. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. It's verse 9, which says, he had, to ra- he had to be raised from the dead. He had to rise. This is a word that we see. It's a word that means it is necessary or one must. We see it all throughout the Gospels. We see that everything that happened in Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, in his death, his resurrection, it all was shaped by the plan of God. And everything unfolded in the life of Jesus exactly as God had declared it would be. And his resurrection is a part of that. So he must rise. He must rise as we consider all of Scripture. Why? Why must he rise? He must rise first to crush sin and death. Now that's a promise that comes from Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? When Adam, the first man, fell into sin and God said, by the sweat of your brow will you live this life and it will be toil for you and there will be death and there will be the curse of death upon this world. 
But the promise that gives shape to all of human history from that point forward is the promise that God gives. There will be a seed of the woman who will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. If not for Jesus Christ, human history would not have continued after the Garden of Eden. It's that promise that gives shape to everything. And all of it is moving forward from the Garden of Eden to the revelation of Jesus Christ that he would come and he would live and die and be, and be raised again. That salvation would be won. That the effects of the curse would be undone. That life would be given forth from death. He must come to crush sin and death. That's the hope of Christ. That is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ proclaiming and exalting what he has done and standing by the witness of scripture and saying that what scripture says is what has actually happened. He must come to crush sin and death. He also must rise. He must rise to crush sin and death and then he must rise to convince his followers of the nature of his work. He must rise to convince them. Uh, The followers of Jesus The first among them, of course, being the disciples, had all of these ideas about what the Messiah was going to be, what he was going to do. Their hopes and their expectations of the Messiah, what was wrong with them? They were bound to the earth. Their hope in the Messiah was bound to the earth. And they couldn't see what the Messiah was doing relative to eternity, relative to eternal life, relative to heavenly realities. And so Jesus must rise from the dead in order to convince them of the nature of his work. They could not foresee that the Messiah would suffer. Jesus would talk about his suffering and sometimes his his apostles would rebuke him for it, right? Peter would say, never, you you can't suffer. They could not foresee that he would suffer and just as they could not have foreseen that he had to suffer, they could not foresee that he would rise from the dead. That that was how deep his redeeming work went. Their hopes were bound to the earth. Jesus showed them something deeper, something greater. Isaiah 53 is perhaps one of the, uh, the, the greatest Old Testament passages that talks about the nature of the Messiah's work. It's a place we often go to talk about the suffering of the Messiah, the fact that he had to go to the cross. Talked about it a little bit on Friday night. And just as Isaiah 53 teaches us that the Messiah had to suffer, so it teaches us that there would be a glory that would follow suffering. This is how Isaiah 53 ends in verse 12. God says the Messiah will suffer, and then he says this. Therefore, in other words, since he will suffer, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Key words there. God will give him a portion He'll give him an inheritance. He will give him something that he has earned through his suffering. It will be a spoils that he will share with the ones whom he represents. In other words, Isaiah 53 tells us very clearly, the Messiah will suffer and then he will enjoy a reward because of his suffering. Jesus had to rise to convince his followers of the nature of his work. This is what Christ does. And this is the hope that he gives us. Friends, do you understand the nature of Christ's work? Are you growing in your appreciation for what Christ has done? G.K. Chesterton puts it wonderfully as he so often does. He says, 
that they, they did not know. They, they were realizing it with varying degrees on the day of the resurrection. But one thing that they could not know was that the old world had died in the night. That with the dawn came this dawning of a new age. And our growing in the faith, our growing in realizing who Christ is, is coming to more and more of a realization of the reality that that new age has dawned in Christ. And that we must live each and every day in light of what he has brought, in light of that new age. It's amazing. You you see Jesus, you see the work that he did, you see his life. He shows us the condition of our hearts, doesn't he? He shows us time and time and time again that we're so much like his disciples, that our hopes are so bound to the earth, that our pride separates us from God and and our being drawn towards sensual pleasures binds us to the earth. He shows us the condition of human hearts. Ask yourself, are you aware of the nature of his work, the glorious new age that dawned with the resurrection? Or are you growing in your appreciation for that and loving him? Because you see, he is a savior who gives you eternal life. He must rise to crush and to convince. He also says that he must depart. So he must rise and then he must depart. And we see this in this interaction with Mary. Uh, Mary shows us uh, through her interaction with Jesus why Jesus must depart. And she's there, she stays there, she's still weeping. Peter and John have left. She's still weeping. And she comes face to face with all of this evidence. All of this evidence and, and she still, it doesn't, the, the light bulb doesn't go on. She sees the, the cloths. She even talks to the angels. Uh, she hears Jesus himself. And it's not until Jesus calls her by name. He says, Mary. He calls her by name. Why? Because earlier in the Gospel of John, what have we learned? Learned that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's a shepherd of his sheep. He says, I call my sheep by name, and they will follow me. In John 10, he also says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But then there's this strange thing that happens in verse 17. Jesus says to Mary, don't hold on to me. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. People have puzzled over this. They're saying, is Jesus teaching us something about his resurrection body, that it it can't be touched? And that creates even more of a problem because Jesus tells Thomas later on in this chapter to touch him, touch the wounds. So we, we think Jesus probably isn't saying that. It's probably best to understand Jesus is saying to Mary, don't worry, my time has not yet come for me to ascend to my father. Moreover, I'm not some kind of private dream come true. You can't clutch onto me, but rather you must go and proclaim what has happened. Go and tell the disciples. Tell them what has taken place. Tell them that I have risen and tell them that I am going to return to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So he calls her by name and she becomes this wonderful picture of gospel ministry. She reminds us a little bit of Lazarus, doesn't she? When Jesus calls Lazarus by name and he comes forth from the tomb, that there is this life that goes forth as Jesus calls. He's the good shepherd and he calls. And, he, and Mary becomes this picture of gospel ministry, that Jesus, the good shepherd, will call his sheep by name. He will give them eternal life. They will trust and they will embrace the risen Christ. It's the picture of the gospel. 
so he must depart to call. But he must depart also so that he might commission. So he must depart to call and to commission. He commissions his disciples and gives them gospel ministry as they're assembled together. They're assembled together on the evening of that first day of the week, as it says in verse 19. Assembled together, the evening of the first day of the week. So that it would be the first evening worship service of the New Covenant Church there, isn't it, right? Uh, evening worship, isn't it such a great blessing? So they're assembled together. Jesus commissions them. Commissions them. And three things about what he calls them to. It's a ministry of peace. It's a ministry of, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a ministry of forgiveness. Jesus says, peace be with you. Which would have been a, a wonderfully comforting thing. The disciples, they're probably a little bit worried, right? Because they're not exactly sure how it all fits together with scripture. They're thinking Jesus has come back. Are we to be counted first among his enemies? Has he come back to take revenge because his closest followers weren't really standing by him in his hour of trial? Jesus comes to them. He says, peace be with you. He'll repeat that two more times. He says it three times in this passage. Peace be with you. Wonderfully comforting message. And then you see how that gives shape to all that the apostles will do from that point on. They go as they proclaim the gospels. They talk to God's people. They say, grace to you and peace. It's a message of grace and peace. Forgiveness. Being forgiven of what you have done. Knowing that you stand justly condemned before a holy God. But because of the work of his son, you can be forgiven. It's a ministry that goes forth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he breathes. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's probably best to think about this as somewhat of a precursor to Pentecost. People have thought about, is there some way in which he gives them the Spirit here in this moment? It's probably more like when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and that's a precursor to the cross. This is probably a precursor to Pentecost so that they know when Jesus ascends and gives them his Spirit that it is coming from him. He says, I will give you the Spirit. The Spirit will help you. The Spirit will be with you. And finally, it's a, it's a ministry of authority, of forgiveness. He gives them authority. Remember in the Gospels when Jesus will forgive sins and, and the Jewish religious leaders say, how can this man do this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Just as that was difficult for them to grasp, so then this would be too. Jesus gives his apostles the authority to forgive sins. If you go and you read the book of Acts, it becomes clear what this means. He doesn't give them authority for private absolution of sins. He gives them authority to go and proclaim the gospel. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So he must depart to call and to commission. That they might go forth and might proclaim that in Jesus Christ, because he was, because he was crucified, because he has been risen, because of Christ, you can look to him. And the God of the universe becomes your God. His Father becomes your Father. You see how he, he makes those things so deeply personal. In the Old Testament, it, it, uh, God was the Father of Israel, but it wasn't as deeply personal as Jesus makes it. So it's personal, and yet it's distinct. He is Christ's Father, and he is our Father. We get to call him the same thing that Christ does, and yet Jesus doesn't say, our Father and our God. So he keeps his work distinct as if to say, only in me can you experience this blessing. And only my work is effective in this way. My father 
and your Father, my God and your God. The last picture that we have in this chapter is Thomas. Thomas, who is called to believe. And in many ways, he he sets up as this paradigm shift for the ongoing ministry of the gospel. Thomas sounds a lot like a person who's born in our lifetime, isn't he? And we call him Doubting Thomas, and that's, we're a little bit rough with him because if we really think about it, everyone else who's trying to convince him that Jesus has been risen has already seen Jesus with their eyes. See, he's the one who has not seen Jesus. So he says, unless I see, I will not believe. Unless I see him, touch him, I'm not going to believe. So it sounds a little bit like uh, a modern day skeptic. You see a lot of people who talk, uh, who talk that way in today's world. Just goes to show us that skepticism did not arise with scientific rationalism, right? It, it goes back even as far as time. But Thomas missed something, didn't he? He missed that right there in front of him, there was good, explicit evidence of the resurrection of Christ carried on through the testimony of those who were proclaiming it to him. What was Thomas going to say? Was he really ready to admit that all of the people he loved and trusted the most, that they had been swallowed up in some kind of delusion? Was he really willing to say that they were all trying to play some sort of cruel trick on him? All kinds of evidence was put in front of Thomas. It was just not the kind of evidence that he liked. But then Jesus appears to him and he has this wonderful proclamation of the deity of Christ, perhaps the most staggering confession of Jesus in all of Scripture. We remember in John chapter 1 where the word was God, the word was with God, and the word was God. And there are some people who will say Jesus is not portrayed as the only God in John chapter 1 because it doesn't say he is the God. There's no definite article before the Greek word for God. But then Thomas says here, and if we were to to literally translate what he says, he says, my Lord and the God of me. Staggering. But Jesus gives this blessing to to, to shift, in a sense, the the, the paradigm of belief, what it means to, to believe and to trust in this Son of God. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that does not mean that faith is blind faith. It's not a jump over a dark cliff, right? That's not it at all. God has entered history. He has entered history. No one disputes the life of Christ. No one disputes his teachings that he was crucified. People have been trying to disprove uh, his work and his resurrection for centuries. And yet, it endures. It's been said that when the church believes and when they confess the resurrection of Christ say that they believe it, they add a confirming witness to the historical evidence. That when people stand up in the midst of a town square, when someone says, it is foolish to believe in God, and when they say Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, they add to it their confirmed witness. It doesn't make it truer, it doesn't make the gospel truer, but they add to it a confirming witness. So we must believe to confirm. We must believe to confirm. And then we add the confirming witness of a changed life. How do you account for the changed lives of the apostles? How do you account for the fact that they all went off, except John, they all went off and died alone? People say it was some kind of groupthink. They all, they all convinced themselves that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They got themselves riled up. But then they all go off by themselves and they die a horrible death for their Savior. 
How do you, convince, how do you account for the changed lives? How do you account for the empty tomb? That the, that the Jews could get an innocent man crucified and yet afterwards they could not produce the body. How do you account for the most powerful empire in the world not being able to guard a simple tomb? And so the church endures by confessing the resurrection of Christ, by holding it in their hearts, by learning to treasure and love the age which Christ has brought to us, the new age of eternal life. The astounding truth, though he was dying, though he, though he was killed, he is risen, and he is risen indeed. First Peter chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We do not see him with our eyes, we have not seen him, but we believe in him. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Jesus gives to us an answer that no one else in all of human history can give. He answers the deepest questions, the deepest longings of our hearts. He entered history. All of that has been confirmed with witnesses. All of that has been built upon the history of the church with the confirming witness of changed lives, with the resurrection changing and transforming lives, with the Christian message being so much different than any other worldview, clinging to Christ and finding forgiveness and eternal life in him. We read in 1 Peter, again, that there's joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, and that's really the defining mark of the church. You can go through this life and have a joy that's inexpressible. No matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what we meet on the road of life, we can have a joy that's inexpressible And filled with glory. Christianity gives us the satisfaction that things can be set right. At dawn on that first day. A new world. A new age emerged. The age of death had died in the night. And true and lasting joy becomes central to the hope and the life of the Christian. Where sadness and mourning become something special and small. Because we see that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We know that our Savior lives. And at the last day, he will stand upon the earth. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for this hope. We praise you for sending your son to die. We thank you that he has been raised, as your word says, for our forgiveness, for our justification. We pray that we would live in light of all these things. We praise you eternally in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing number 358.